Good morning. It's good to see everybody. I don't think I've met everybody in here. If this is your first time here, welcome to Legacy Church. It's good to have you. Um, we are working through the book of Acts. We have been working through the book of Acts for quite a long time. And we're going to find ourselves today in chapter 19. So if you have a Bible or an app or something like that that you would use to travel through this with us, we're going to be in Acts 19. It's a powerful passage today. I think it's one that's always good to refresh every now and then as it kind of helps us understand our life and how we see the Lord. A few weeks ago, Randy actually stood up here and did a really good job of talking to us about idols. He, he kind of dipped our toe into the water of what it looked like to put idols down in our life. And, you know, the, the more I look at this passage, the more I realize nobody that walked in here really sees themselves as an idol worshiper. I mean, if I just even say the phrase, idol worshiper to you, probably the first thing that comes up in your mind is the first thing that would come up in my mind is some scene out of an Indiana Jones movie, right? With a bunch of people chanting and bowing before something that's carved out of stone or carved out of wood. They've got paint on, right? There's like I said, there's drums in the background. Someone's got a blowgun, right, or a spear. Or there's shields. This is what I'm thinking in my mind, right? I would watch something like that and think, how can people be so backwards? I mean, that's a, that's a rock. They're worshiping a rock that they chiseled with their hand. They know that that's not a god. How can they worship this thing that looks like a totem pole when they made it with their own hands? How do they do this? But they're convinced that, it can deliver them. They're convinced it can save them. And whatever we're convinced will deliver us in this world, we'll worship. We all will do it. I mean, we're all idol worshipers. It's just our idols look a lot different today. We carve them differently than they carved them back then. We carve our career into something that we could worship. We could even worship our kids. We can make idols out of social media or our fitness and health out of money, out of this city, out of a football team. They all promise something. They all promise that they're going to deliver us out of this difficult place that we call life. Life is tough. Life is hard. And it has various pain points and pressure points. And some things will come along and say, if you worship me by time, money, or hopes and dreams, if you worship me, I could deliver you, even for just a moment, away from this pain and this pressure and this tension that you feel. We protect these idols. We'll even defend them at all costs, even when we suspect that they're not really delivering what they say they're going to deliver. Right? We say that all the time up here on stage, that idols have this, this problem going for them, and that's that they always overpromise and yet they always underdeliver. And we always think that if we just give a little bit more, that they will finally deliver us into that heaven on earth that they advertise that they will, but they never quite get it done. So this passage is going to help us, but before we even jump in, I want to show you how Isaiah approaches this idea of us crafting idols with our own hands. He says this, and stay where you're at in Acts, but this is in Isaiah 44. This is the word of the Lord through Isaiah. He says, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire, and he bakes bread. 
Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. This is what's crazy to me. Such a crazy passage. This craftsman, he saw this tree when it was in the ground. For all we know, he planted the seeds. This tree grows. It's watered. He cuts it down. He, he brings tools to it. He shapes it into wood that he can later on turn into an idol. And then he worships it. How do you do this? How do you make something with your hands knowing that it's not God and yet ascribe deity to it at the same time. If that seems odd to you, it's supposed to. We're supposed to feel a little weird about this passage. We're supposed to ask questions here because it doesn't make any sense. And yet we're no more advanced 3,000 years later. We're, We're no more impressive. We're still looking to be delivered from a hard existence with pain points and pressure points, and we still fashion things. We still make things, and then we ascribe deity to them. You walked in here today looking for deliverance from various pressure points, right? Because life is tough. Everybody kind of needed a reprieve of some shape when they walked in here. Something's hard. It's a relationship. It's career. It's your health. Something. And whatever we see as our rescue, whatever promises and advertises that it will deliver us will be this point of worship for us where we, just like this guy in Isaiah says, deliver me for you are my God. But these small gods, these pseudo-gods, they demand more worship and yet they bring less deliverance. That's what's interesting. We worship more and more and we find less and less deliverance over and over and over again. This is why there's no such thing as a happy idol worshiper. They're perpetually just disgruntled because they're never getting that heaven on earth that they think that they're supposed to get. So there's good news for us in a city that's going to be Ephesus for us today, but it's also Knoxville and every other city that mankind has made full of people craving deliverance from a hard life, full of people that have various pain points and pressure points, full of people that are looking for deliverance into something a little bit sweeter, something a little bit more peaceful, full of rest, full of meaning, full of joy, full of satisfaction. And that's where this passage is going to be helpful for us today. So let's look in Acts 19. We're going to be in verse 10. And just to kind of bring you up to speed, Paul is in Ephesus, and he is kind of camping out there for two years, right? And so this is his third missionary trip, and this is the one city that he spends the most time in as he's on mission. And it says this, this, meaning making disciples and teaching, continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Okay, pause, right? I mean, you have to, I can't just keep reading there, right? 
It's a crazy passage. Miracles. There's, I mean, I thought miracles were a little bit extraordinary. These aren't just miracles. These are extraordinary miracles. Because there's people who are sick or they're acting like a horror movie. Because there's all kinds of demonic possession and they're flopping around or speaking weird or something like that. I don't know. You haven't even pretend to know what's going on. But they took bandanas and work aprons that had belonged to Paul. Maybe he used them when he was making tents. We don't know. Right? There's speculation there. But whatever they were, they took those and then they started to lay them or hand them out to these people that were demonically oppressed and sick. And they got healed. Does that still happen today? Right? Does this still happen today? I mean, miracles happen today. Some of you have seen them. I've seen some crazy miracles. I've seen things with my eyes that I thought, that doesn't obey the laws of the universe that we occupy. Like, that should not have happened. For any reason, that should not have happened. And yet it does. This is an interesting one because this is not really a prescription for us today. We're not even told that Paul recommended this or even knew that it was happening. But God was happy and pleased to heal people. So why is he healing people like this in this place? It's important to know that Ephesus is a city that is electric with superstition and dark arts and magic. This was part of the the center of gravity for all of the tourism in that. It's a big tourist city, right? And Ephesus was full of, this would have been the city you would have gone to and they would have had like a Hogwarts roller coaster that people would have waited for four hours to sit on. They'd have libraries full of books on magic that look like Doctor Strange, the big books with the locks on front and everything. And that would have been normal to these people. It's a very weird city, a very different city than where he had been in the past. And what it shows you and me is that, again, and we see God doing this over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, God will condescend to meet us according to where we're at. When I say condescend, I don't mean speak down to, but he lowers himself. He lowers himself to meet us according to how we understand the world. This just makes him a good missionary, by the way. This is what good missionaries do. They, they find people where they're at. I mean, just consider, if God doesn't come near you and me, unless we are 100% free of superstition, we're doomed, right? Because all it takes, all it takes is for a mirror to break across the room. Some of you are going to be thinking in your head, well, there's seven years for somebody. Seven years of bad luck for somebody, Or if you're walking on a sidewalk and you walk on on a crack and somebody says, step on a crack, break your mother's, yeah, right, we're weirdos. Walk under a ladder. None of you are walking under ladders. Have you been in a building, a tall one, where you get in and the elevator doesn't have a 13th floor? I've seen them. I'm looking, it goes from 12 to 14. That's just superstition right there. Even if the people that built the elevator weren't superstitious, they know that the people getting in and out of that thing all day are superstitious, right? And heaven forbid that the 13th of a month fall on a Friday, right? Because inevitably somebody is going to say, hey, well, I mean, today is Friday the 13th, you know, as if that makes any difference, as if that should change how you live your life that day. But we're a superstitious people. And Christians can be even goofier with their superstition, can't they? I mean, if you forget or skip reading the Bible for a day or a week or a year, and then something really bad happens to you, what's the first thing you think of? Oh, if I had not missed spending time in the Word, this might not have happened. As as if it's a, a rabbit's foot or some sort of a talisman or something like that. We could be just as goofy. That's the kind of city we're talking about. So God is condescending to meet these people in their ignorance and their weakness, and that is a grace and mercy to them every bit as much as it's a grace and mercy to us when he meets us where we are at. 
That's what's going on there. Let's look at verse 13. Let's keep reading. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, because the passage wasn't weird enough, right? They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of Jesus was extolled. Okay, strange passage, finding a way to get stranger. But we have a bunch of brothers that had a dad of some spiritual standing, some weight to his voice. And so what they're doing is they're name-dropping. Paul's name, Jesus' name, they're name dropping to bilk money out of, or out, of, out of people that are just afflicted. They've got demons, they've got issues, and they're, they're just kind of doing this exorcism thing. And they just name dropped with the wrong guy. And they got beat up. Beat up so bad they were wounded and naked. Listen, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight. They rarely last over like six seconds. I got in a bunch of fights in high school, and I, you would know it was a bad fight if I like scratched my, my Barclays and had my Nautica shirt ripped a little bit, you know. That's when you knew it was probably a fight that made it past five minutes or five seconds or something like that. But if you have no clothes on, you probably didn't win the fight, right? And these guys are wounded. They're pushed around. They're naked. They're streaking across the city. And everybody in the city heard about this because, of course, they did, right? Because life is high school and news like that gets out fast. And the result of this weird, this weird moment in a weird season is that Jesus was extolled, which is a word we don't use anymore. None of you have used that word this year extolled. It just means enthusiastically praised. People are seeing healings, demonic possessions being upended, moments like what we see with the, with the sons of Sceva, and, and the result is they enthusiastically praise the person of Jesus. They hear the gospel and they enthusiastically praise. It's worship. We're seeing worship here, and this is beautiful. And then the passage gets a little weirder. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Okay, pause just for a second. New believers are unable to walk into their house and see their bookshelf the same way. Right? They're just new people. They don't go to McKay's and sell all their stuff. They burn it. They burn it. And this is important, right? I want you to see the gravity of this moment right here. The, the, a day's average wage back then was a piece of silver. If you worked really hard all day, you would get one piece of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver equates, I mean, I did the math already, to today's average day's wage in America with our earning power currently, inflation adjusted, of course, right? 
We're talking about over $8 million worth of material burned. Actually closer to nine, but we're going to round down a little bit closer to eight. That's a lot of money. That's a big fire, friends. In fact, I did a little bit more research in that library right down the hall here at West High School. There's approximately 20,000 books. Cost them just around half a million dollars to stuff that library full of books. $500,000 in value. And I know it's arguable that some of those books even have any value, right? But that's what they paid to put the books in the library. That's an equivalency of between 15 and 18 high school libraries being burned. That's an amazing amount of material being all thrown into the middle and just set on fire. What I want you to see here is this is what it looks like when Jesus grabs a community. This is what it looks like. If you ever wonder what it would look like for Knoxville to radically be pushed over, tumped over because of the glory of God shining through the beautiful gospel, it looks a little bit like this. We see this disturbance on an economic level. We see spiritual disturbances, dramatic changes, because Christ cannot be hidden. But what this means is his church can't be hidden either. And that's what leads us to the next part, the next passage. Verse 23 it says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is just the church. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends of his, sent him and said and urged him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing. This is my favorite sentence in the whole passage right here. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, let me show you what's going on right here. This is ripped right out of 2022, by the way, where you have a furious mob and everyone's mad and furious and they're flipping things over and half the people there don't even know why they're there. They're just flipping stuff over and setting it on fire. All the same, right? And Demetrius is part of the reason this all kicked off. He's kind of like a, like a union chief. He's a master tradesman. Again, a guy with a pretty weighty voice and he is appealing to everyone's emotions and their patriotism. He's basically saying, hey, your money's on the line. You're going to lose your money. Our city's going to lose its center of gravity, what brings people here. Everything's going to, you're going to lose. Are you going to put up with that? You're about to lose everything. Ephesus, 
as a city is wrapped around this temple of Artemis, kind of like Gatlinburg is wrapped around the mountains. It's, it is the centerpiece of that city. The temple of Artemis, by the way, is one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It barely fits inside Neyland Stadium, barely. That's how big it was. It was an impressive structure. And then what this meant is there's lots of traffic there. People came from all over the world. Lots of traffic, lots of selfies, lots of postcards, lots of tourism, lots of money spent, which means lots of money made until now. Now this little snow globe, shot glass industry that they were kind of pushing onto the tourists is starting to take a hit. So bricks start flying. Spray paint comes out. They're starting to set things on fire. Reason won't be had because they're furious and they're enraged. Listen, this is what it looks like when idols are touched. This is what it looks like when someone starts messing with idols, the things that promise deliverance, the things that hold deep meaning. They're not just important. They're life-giving. This is what it looks like. Rage, fury, fear, confusion, violence, and this still happens today, and you've seen it on the news. Have you seen how furious people get when their, their freedom to abort a life was threatened and taken away? This thing that they, they claim delivered them, this ability to have autonomy over their own, their own bodies taken away, or if their, prom, their pronouns are removed or threatened, or their political party is threatened. Have you noticed a, a similarity in all the school shootings? Young men enraged that life is not handing them what they demand in order for them to have heaven on earth. And so they revolt. They're confused. They're furious. They're enraged. When what promises deliverance to you and me is threatened, we throw bricks too. Why wouldn't a city? Of course it does. No way we impact this metro area as a church without catching some bricks. It's not going to happen. No way. The gospel we preach won't share the room with idols. This is what we can expect, friends. This is what you can expect too. This is what you can expect too. Let's look and see what it says in verse 35. This is where it kind of starts to tailor down. It says, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? That what they're saying right there, by the way, is they believe that the centerpiece of that temple was a meteor that came down, that they started to bow down and worship, that that was actually the, 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 the idol. That's debated, but that's why that's in there. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So for two hours this is going on. This guy comes out, and I think they were probably more exhausted and hoarse than they were reasonable, but whatever, they all went home, right? And that's the end of this little episode of what's going on. The main idea that I think we can carry out of this today for you and me is that Ephesus is experiencing Jesus. That's first. We do see that. But we also see this contrast. We see new believers burning their idols while other people are furiously protecting their idols. That's what we see. Now that's the truth about this passage, but why do you care? 
I mean, what does it matter to you, even if all of that is true? And I think it becomes very important for us because we all walked in here with idols. I did. You did. We all do. And without effort, we craft them with our heart. The construction fodder to make an idol is literally endless. We could take even good things, elevate them to ultimate things, and create an idol. People, jobs, identity, family. You see, the Christian life, as we grow as disciples, the Christian life is one that is filled with idol hunting and idol smashing, back and forth, your whole life. Your whole life, you will see something that is more than just good. It's become ultimate. It's more than just important. It's become life-giving. And then submitting that to the Lord over and over again. I think you're only in danger when you say that you are free from the grip of idols. That's when you're in danger. If you sit there today and you're like, I don't think I have any idols, you're the one that's in danger, friend. It's when you stop hunting for idols. You stop seeing them in your life. That's when you're in danger. John tells us in 1 John 1, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this is how you can spot the all-elusive idol when it's running around in the wild. This is how you see it. Whenever it's threatened, you will start to get angry. You'll start to get furious, confused, resistant. There'll be friction going on. This is why, but, but this is why people jump out of buildings when the Dow drops too low. This is why shootings escalate. Life is hard, and idols just quit delivering peace on earth. And so it goes for you and me. It, it might be more than a job to you. It might be more. It might be more than just a social media account. Your free time, as valuable as that is, might be a little bit more than just free time for you, right? Your money might be more than just money to you. It might be too ultimate. It might be something that we've elevated. Our health, our spouse, it's endless. It's endless. Quick question. Is the Spirit bringing something to your attention even as we talk about this? What are you hoping right now is not an idol in your life? What is coming up in your mind where you're convincing yourself, no, 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 that's not an idol. That's just a hobby. That's just a hobby. That's just something I love a whole bunch, a whole, whole, whole bunch. That's just something different. Whatever that is, be careful. Don't provide cover for it. The Holy Spirit might be doing something in you, right? It might, it might not be an idol. But be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is doing in you as you work through questions like that. Because we get furious. I know from experience, when I come into the life of somebody else, and it's very obvious that there's an idol that is ruining their life, and you address it, one of the responses is, Luke, you mean to tell me that this is an idol? You mean to tell me that it's a sin for me to, whatever it is, fill in the blank. You mean to tell me that that's a sin? Well, no, not for everybody. But for you, it's become life-giving. For you, you can't imagine living without it. For you, the, just the mere discussion of putting it down is pulling this revulsion out of you. For you, it's bigger, right? What means death when you lose it and what means life itself when you gain it? Because that is the physics of an idol. That's how it works. And here's the quick warning as we do embark on this idol hunting and idol smashing. The quick warning is, is that when we crush an idol, something is going to take its place. Humanity's affections will not abide by a vacuum. 
We were created to have affections. We were created to spend our affections. It's just worship. We're created to be worshipers. So when we put an idol down, it's not as simple as just moving on. You will if you're not careful, and if Christ is not the one that's swelling to push that empty space out, you'll just pick up another idol. You'll just find, and maybe it'll be a more religious-looking one or a more socially acceptable idol, but it's still an idol. It's still something, right? Sure, we drop video games as they are taking too much of our life and have become too central, and then we pick up a career that becomes a god. But because it's a career and we're hardworking at it, people applaud and it's really hard to spot for what it really is. You're still enslaved. You just walk out of one cell, turn around, and walk into another cell. Or, or, or the success story of the guy who loses 200 pounds, right? Because he used to be addicted to food, and, and escaping and deliverance through food used to be his thing, but then he becomes this massive crossfitter, and he can't miss a day of, of working out, and it becomes this huge idol in his life. And we applaud that, don't we? We applaud it. All he did was step out of one cell and move into another. Still circling the drain, still enslaved. Without Jesus, we're just idol swapping. Right? Listen, love your family, love your health, love your career. Do it. Protect them too. And when you lose a chunk of it, it's something to mourn. But if they bring life itself to you, if they deliver you in this hard world, that's the shape of an idol. You see, without our affections for Jesus swelling, we're powerless from picking up new idols, actually. That's how we put them down and leave them down. Jesus and our fascination for Jesus has to swell and expand and take all of that empty space in our life. And when our love for Jesus swells, there is no room for idols. That's the only thing that can properly deal with our idol problem. It's the swelling fascination for Jesus. That, that's, that's why our very first value at Legacy is gospel fascination. The others are communal authenticity and missional activity. But without gospel fascination, we'll always be circling the drain with various idols. But when we become fascinated with Christ, when Jesus grows and consumes our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams, I could promise two things will happen to you. One is you will finally find satisfaction as God is glorified in your life. Secondly, you're just going to see more idols. That's what's crazy. The light gets brighter. We talked about this in our men's Bible study this last week. I talked about how when I became a brand new believer, right, I just, all I knew to do was repent for the big sins that I could see, right, as a young guy in his 20s, you know. So all I was, I was like, man, okay, I'm living for Jesus now, so I've got to repent from these sins in my life which was like lust, 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 and cussing, right? And so that's, that was my circle. That's all I did was repent over those big things. I couldn't even see things like pride. I couldn't even see things like slander. I couldn't even see things like, like, uh, like theft, like, like not, not stewarding my finances properly or, or something like that. I couldn't even see those. But as you grow in your fascination with Jesus grows, the light of God shines in the darkness. And what used to be seemingly insignificant becomes seemingly significant. You could finally see it for what it is. And that's what happens. And why does God do it that way? Again, this is him finding us where we're at. This is him condescending and lowering to find us where we're at. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for how thoughtful God is when he visits us, when he rescues us. Think about that. When he if you're a Christian in here, when he found you, he found you mid-worship. 
worshiping idols. Worshiping idols, right in the middle of it. That's how he found you. He found you superstitious, reluctant to burn the things that you had invested so much time and money in. He finds us slow growing, finds us rebellious, finds us worshiping chunks of wood. We have technology now, still chunks of wood though, right? That's how he finds us. And when we're like this, that's when he loves us, says Paul in Romans. That's when he loves us. When we are most broken, most despisable, most gross, that is when he reveals how these idols are robbing us and lying to us. That's when he does that and shows himself to be more beautiful. And this, we don't deserve at all. We deserve none of this. Justice is what we deserve. Justice looks like God telling you and me, you want your career to be your God? Have at it. Hope it works. Do you want that hobby to be your God? Do you think that will deliver you? We'll see. That's justice. Mercy is him coming along and not letting us have what we deserve. Grace is us getting him instead. It's us getting him and all of him. And unlike the idols that continually overpromise and underdeliver, Jesus keeps the promises that he makes. He is a promise maker, but he is a promise keeper. He does not overpromise, he promises perfectly. He does not underdeliver, he delivers perfectly. So the voice of the idol says, You're almost there. You're almost there. If you just give 10 more minutes, you'll finally get heaven on earth. If you just give 10 more dollars, 10 more years, if you just give a little, you are so close. The reason I haven't delivered you yet is because you haven't haven't made it yet, but you're this close. That's the voice of an idol. Jesus comes along and says, that must be fatiguing. You must be tired. Come to me, all who are weary. And with me, you'll find peace. And I'll deliver you. And my yoke is easy. That's a promise he keeps. An idol comes along and says, if you abandon me, you'll be destroyed. Jesus comes along and says, I was destroyed so that you will never be abandoned. He's such a beautiful promise keeper. Listen, if you're here and you are far from Jesus, or you're watching online and you're far from Jesus, I don't know what your chunks of wood are. But you came in here one one, right? And I think we both know I think you suspect, and if you're honest, we'll admit that it's not delivering you, that it's not going to. You've suspected that because you've given more and more and you found nothing, and you've given even more and even more and you've still found nothing over and over again. Friend, that is life without Jesus, always circling the drain, always leaving one cell just to step into the next one over and over and over again. It is time to burn your idols even the ones you've put so much investment and time into, they won't save you. It's time for you to stop making things ultimate and just make them good. God has given you some good things. Friends, he's given you probably a great career and you're ruining them because you've you've demanded that they supply life to you. They just need to be good. This is why I tell my kids, by the way, and why if you're a parent, it's good to tell your kids, look for a spouse who loves God more than you. Look for a spouse who will love God far more than you or else they'll ruin your marriage because they will demand that you supply what only God can supply, right? Listen, that's not gonna save you, friends. And I'm gonna wanna pray for you here in just a minute. 
But if you're here and you are in the church and you do love Jesus, you would call yourself a disciple, I think we can all admit that we also walked in here with something parasitically latched onto us, promising that if we just give more, then we'll thrive. We'll thrive. It will meet all of our needs. And here's the truth. If you want, you can keep it. You can keep it. You get mad at what I'm saying. You could protect that idol. You could keep it. You can walk right back out of here with it. You can keep it. If you're a Christian, not even you are strong enough to pry God's fingers off of your life. But you will live on this planet as one perpetually unsatisfied as Jesus is made tiny and not glorified in your life and you never taste satisfaction because you're also free to grow. You're also free to grow and put down these gods. Reposition your life where good things are just good and they're not ultimate. I mean, repentance is required for us as a church. Because these things that we give God status, we do that because we see a deficiency in Jesus. We see that he is not good enough. He is not strong enough. He's not enough. Every idol we pick up is an indictment that we say God is not really God. That requires repentance. We don't just repent for playing too much video games. We We don't just repent for overworking. We don't just repent for pushing our kids into extracurricular so we could feed off of their achievements. We repent for calling God a liar, for saying that he is not good, for saying that he is not sufficient. Heavy repentance. Friends, listen, there is great opportunity for us today as a church. There's a great opportunity for us today to do what some of these Ephesians did and just put life into its proper context, burn that needs to be burned up and reposition everything that needs to be repositioned in such a way that God swells and we become growingly, increasingly more fascinated with him day by day by day.